are listening to Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast, where we talk about your theological questions. BGN podcast is produced every Saturday for your enjoyment. Get more information on our website, grace-nation.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at Grace Nation Min and on Facebook. Now, here is your host, President of Grace Nation Ministries, Victor. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast. I am your host, Victor, and I have my amazing co-host, Billy. Hey, Victor. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing really, really good. Tired, but good. Tired? Why are you so tired? Why am I so tired? Because you and I stayed up last night till like 1 a.m. doing homework. Yeah, and <laughs> we didn't get much sleep the night before either because we visited Reformed Theological Seminary. Yes, we did do that. Which was kind of a fun little field trip we got oh, to take. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, but yeah, so we're a little tired, so p- maybe pardon our cadence and our uh, voices and things, but <laughs> we are we're not going to say any heresy. Right, well, I mean, God uses our weakness and makes <laughs> it his strength. That's right. So... Yeah, super excited for today's episode, uh, and and I think, I think, people are gonna really appreciate some of the things that we're gonna talk about, and uh-huh. and although it might not be the widely accepted view, mm. uh, because I think where we stand is honestly a minority of of Christian Absolutely. Christianity, especially in uh, in the Western Church. Right. So so if you guys don't agree with what we're saying. Or, or you guys don't have the same convictions. We're not here to uh, necessarily persuade you out of your convictions, but mm. we're here to to kind of tell you where we are and where Absolutely. God is leading us in the scriptures. And hopefully, it will uh, stir your affections for the Lord yeah. and really just guide you on your search uh, through this area. And we'll introduce the topic here in a second. I'll leave you guys on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah, keep but, listening. <laughs> yeah, but we have an amazing kind of shift on Grace Nation Ministries and the Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast that we've kind of been talking about that I've been kind of thinking about and I, I'm so excited to launch this in January. Uh, Grace Nation podcast or Bringing Grace to the Nations podcast will be launching a, not a new show but just like another segment uh, and so we'll have two posts a month mm. I think is kind of where we're leading and um, basically, the, one post will be focused on a specific nation, and we're just going to kind of talk about uh, that specific place and talk about the gospel movement and things that missionaries are doing there and mm-hmm. really talk about how we can get involved and, and help influence the gospel mm. in those areas. And I think that's a really cool uh, idea. So we're, we're, we're going to have one episode specifically on that. And then the next episode will be about like current events, things that are going on in America, how Christians should be reacting biblically, how we can rally behind those who have been hurt and things like that. And so those are going to be uh, just kind of an, they're not going to replace any of the Saturday podcasts. They're not going to take that time up, but they're just going to be a kind of an addition yeah. to, to yeah, later in the week. And, and yeah. you're kind of, kind of be able to head that up a little bit maybe. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm really excited. And I think, um, you know, we, we were talking about this earlier. We really want uh, bringing grace to the nations. We want the podcast and the focus of it to be um, on the gospel and its advancement in the nations. Right. And I really do believe that we should have a focus on specific nations. We right. shouldn't shy away from that. We shouldn't be very general, but we should focus specifically on what God is doing in these specific nations that maybe we don't know about. I mean, right. we have a lot of listeners who aren't necessarily even from America. Yeah, we have we have a, a majority of our listeners are American, but we also have uh, people listening in Bangladesh and South Africa and Kenya and Japan yeah. and England. Absolutely. And, and we want we want to not only know what's happening with the gospel in those areas, yeah. but we want to be kind of. Uh, an influencer for the gospel in those areas too. Absolutely. Uh, and kind of supporting however we can. And so hopefully this will provide kind of that avenue to do that. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think especially around the world today, people are looking at Christians when things like current events happen, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the Vegas shooting, the massacre right. that happened over there, uh, all these natural disasters that are happening in the Western mm-hmm. hemisphere. Uh, people want to know what, Christians think about these issues. Right. Uh, they want to know what is God doing in the midst of this? What is our perception of it uh, when things like this happen? And so I think it's important that we do discuss these things. We don't shy away from the controversy, right. but that we bring uh, that we bring the scriptures 
to light when things like this happen um, and that we are able to use this podcast and those who are listening it uh, will be able to use it to to basically you know be light in in the dark places exactly and I think this provides a good a good reaching point for the secular community and mm. the Christian community Absolutely. because we can communicate to Christians how you know biblically we should be responding to things like this Absolutely. and then to the secular community talking about like well they're very curious as to why a god would let this happening or, mm-hmm. or how a good god and so I think it will draw in people from both areas and and not only unite us for uh, you know, making the world a better place, but also doing that through the means of the gospel and sharing it to, to those people. And so I think it's just going to be a great yeah. opportunity. And hopefully this will be launching in January, Yeah, uh, which is coming up in just a few months, which yeah. seems kind of far away, but it's coming up quickly, man. It's getting there. And so I think this will be a good route because as, as a lot of you guys know, I'm moving to North Carolina. And so this will... Uh, kind of give us a good route so that you can still be very involved in the podcast absolutely uh, through those means and and we'll still be working together on some things so that'll be fun oh absolutely are we still going to take road trips to seminaries oh yeah of course we yeah. have to just as long as we're not <laughs> up at four in the morning to do it oh <laughs> uh, i don't want to always oh, be the man. driver oh man that was that was rough but anyways <laughs> you actually sat in the trunk i did i sat car. okay yeah the cops are gonna <laughs> listen to this and arrest me now i sat in the trunk your for, dad's a cop uh, so. he is so thanks <laughs> that's awesome i did i sat in the trunk for about two and a half hours yeah my back still hurts uh but sacrifice i'm i'm that kind of guy i'm humble oh really i'm humble i'm yeah. the, probably the the most humble guy <laughs> in the world you're probably the most humble guy in the itunes top 10 well, definitely the most humble guy that I just stopped in. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so again, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for li- listening to us ramble on for a few minutes. We want to go ahead and dive into our topic. And what was the title you gave kind of this episode? I really liked it. Uh, yeah, um, I was saying, I think uh, a great title when it comes to kind of dissecting this very controversial topic is just the, just the broad question, who are the people of God? Right, and with that being said, I think it's... I'm going to make a few assumptions, mm-hmm. and the first assumption being that a large majority of our listeners are probably going to fall into one camp, just because that's where the Western church uh, leans to. More and, than likely. And it's not like, this isn't something that is preached in the church, mm-hmm. but it's like used as the base, and then mm-hmm. churches will preach from the standpoint, so Absolutely. you don't really get... Uh, you don't really get the other viewpoint, the, yeah. other, the other two viewpoints, yeah. really. And and we adhere to one that isn't as popular uh, through, and we see that in seminaries, even the school we go to currently yeah. disagrees with us on this topic and di- disagrees with us quite heavily. Yeah. Um, and so we're here to kind of explain those things. So we're going to be talking about, you know, who is the church, uh, who's included in that. So yeah. the first viewpoint uh, that I think we should talk about maybe is probably the lesser out of the three, and that is the replacement theology. Okay. Uh, and okay. so let's. Go, that's my weakest spot. Yeah. Um. So so tell me, f- from me being just like the average guy on, on, in church sitting in the pew, what mm-hmm. is replacement theology? Okay. Well, when it comes to answering the question of uh, who are the people of God, what people are usually referring to is the relationship between uh, Israel. The Jewish people, right. national Israel, and the church, uh, because there's no doubt, there's no doubt that within, you know, within the Old Testament narrative, God chose national Israel, right. and that the the entire story of the Old Testament revolves around this group of people, uh, the family of Abraham that God mm. had chosen out right. of all the other nations to use, and He chose them for the purpose, obviously, of being a kingdom of priests to show the other pagan nations what God is like, and He chose them to be the avenue through which whom the Messiah would come, the right. Savior of the world, um, and so. God shows national Israel. Uh, and so then we see in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus ascends to heaven, uh, this new group of people, the, this, this people called the church being mm. born uh, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descends upon the followers of Jesus, the 120 believers right. gathered in the upper room. And we see the church is born in this moment. And so there's a question of, is there continuity between these two groups? Are they two separate programs? Is there a distinction? Right. Or uh, is there 
is there this organic development from one to the other? Right. So that's the question. So I'm assuming just from hearing replacement theology and hearing these things, it is literally replacing Israel with the church. Essentially, that's the idea. Uh, so they do hold to a distinction in that sense. You know, we see throughout the scriptures, especially in the Gospels, if we read the book of Matthew, for mm-hmm. instance, Matthew is a very Jewish-oriented gospel right, because right. Matthew is is a Hebrew. He is Jewish. He's an Israelite. And he's writing this to Jewish believers in Christ and, and a Jewish audience trying to persuade them of Christ being the Messiah. Right. He, he's trying to, and that's why we see in Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel mm. because he's trying to show them that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and right. the prophets, uh, the law and the prophets which were given to national Israel. Right. Uh, and so we see toward the end of the gospel that Jesus is giving a parable about the tenants. You know, mm. you've heard that parable, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, at the end of the parable, you know, he's talking about uh, a man who sells out his vineyard or he rents it out to tenants who keep it for him uh, and then he sends some servants to go and these are symbolic of the prophets Mm -hmm. and they go to check up on them uh, but then they beat one they kill another they stone a third and then he sends his only son this is a this is symbolic of Jesus and they kill him Mm. and so at the very end Jesus says that what he asked the crowd, the audience, what is he going to do? And they say, well, he'll bring an end. He'll bring an end to them. And Jesus says, yes, exactly. He will go and he will take what he will take the vineyard from them and rent it out to a people who will bear its fruit. And this is symbolic of Christ taking the kingdom away from national unbelieving Israel and giving it to a people who will bear its fruit. And so a lot of people, especially in the reformed camp. Right. And you and I are reformed. Yeah, we fall in that camp. Yeah. a, A lot of people hold this view called replacement theology, which is the idea that the Jewish people as a whole, national Israel, uh, do not have any role to play in God's redemptive history program, you know, like that there's no right. there's no future for national Israel, uh, but that Christ has, he has, as he said, taken the kingdom away from them and he's given it to a new people. To the to the church. Or to yes, the, exactly. Right. So now Jewish people can be saved on an individual basis, but the idea is that national Israel itself has no future in God's redemptive plan. That okay. there's, there's nothing, there's no future for Israel. Right. All the prophecies that God made in the Old Testament regarding Israel, quote unquote, mm-hmm. whatever that means, right. uh, that's to be applied to the church. All of those things that once were true of Israel are now true of okay, the church. Okay, so all of the blessings and, and kind of like prophecies that were still yeah. to come to flourish and were taken from Israel and placed onto the church. Based on their disobedience, their rejection right. of the Messiah. Right. That's the idea. Okay. Then that's, I mean, that's in short replacement theology. Yeah, that's just like a basic overview. And that's that, that tends to be more of the Reformed camp. Yes. Right? And I think, and I mean, we'll talk about covenantal theology in a bit, but I think they tend to kind of, like, people kind of misinterpret and, like, say that, like, covenantal is replacement. Um, yeah, and there, there are some covenant theologians who do hold that. Um, I will say the majority of covenant theologians who, you know, today, like reformers, right. you know, like the big uh, reformers, you know, we know, like, John Piper and people like that, they hold more to a view that, that you and I hold. Right. We're one. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. But but when it comes to, uh, I think, throughout history, honestly, the majority of... Um, the majority of like ever since the Reformation to mm. now, a lot of Reformed churches have taught this view uh, that that the church um, is the new Israel. Essentially, right, right. it is the new Israel. Right. Okay. And so that, in short, that's replacement. That's theology. a brief, very brief summary. Okay. Of what replacement theology is. Now let's talk about the one that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of our viewers yeah. fall into, with possibly without even know they fall into this category. I grew up. Uh, dispensational. Uh, yes. As as the like once I got saved. Right. I grew up in a Baptist church, you know, spiritually speaking. Yeah. And so we grew up dispensational and Yeah. Really we didn't even know it. Like mm-hmm. like but now that I look back on the things that I was taught, <laughs> I look back on the sermons I listened to, I'm yeah. like, wow, this is some dispensational stuff here. Yeah. So you this this is probably 99.9% of the viewers, yeah. of the listeners. And it's a it's a very well thought out popular interpretation Absolutely. of scripture. Yeah. And again, we just want to make clear that this is not for division purposes. 
We're not we trying to. We just want to bring clarity to an issue. Right. And so we are going to unbiasedly explain what dispensational theology and how Absolutely. specifically how dispensational theologians look at the relationship mm-hmm. between the church and Israel. Yes. Uh, we're going to unbiasedly look at it. And I think it's we can look at it unbiasedly mm-hmm. because we were once dispensational. We yes. once held this viewpoint. Yeah. So, so again, we're talk to me. What... How how do dispensation, how do dispensational theologians, uh, you know, interpret the church versus Israel, yeah. and how does that play out throughout you know the church history and, yeah. the, and you know our era and things like yeah. that? Yeah, and I think uh, and I'm glad that you point that out. You know, like we we both used to be dispensational. And I used to actually be a hardcore dispensationalist. Mm-hmm. I used to defend it with all of my heart. I used to be offended at those who held an opposing view. Um, and you know, like we're not gonna talk, we're not gonna really try to dive too much into eschatology today. But I used to be hardcore pre-trib, pre-mill, mm-hmm. uh, dispensational, and I you're one of those guys. Yes, I was one of those Whew. guys, and and that's the majority of. I mean, I went to Word of Life, and that's something that they. Yeah, that's I, true. And I love Word of Life. I do. I love their ministry. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very, very popular view in the Western church. I think the reason it's so popular is because we've seen a lot of churches, um, we've seen a lot of churches compromise their faith. Uh, but but one denomination that's been really strong when it comes to sticking to biblical principles is the Baptist church. It is, yes. And, and dispensationalism is a distinctive of it. Yeah, um, it is. I would say it's probably one of the... I guess doctrines you say are one of the theologies that they cling most tightly to. Yeah. And I give them, I give them props. I'm, I'm Southern Baptist, you know? Yeah. I probably fall more in line with the reformed Baptist. Uh, yeah. And I do too. Side. And but, I'm a Presbyterian youth pastor, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I give specifically the Baptist church props for p- sticking with their theology and not compromising it Absolutely. for the culture or, or other secular beliefs that, that have been trying to invade theology for a long time. Yeah. I think it's worth noting that dispensationalism in and of itself, so if we're talking about like, it's in and of itself, it's a theological construct. I think we should mention though, before we get into it really, is that it's actually relatively new. It is. Yeah. It, Covenantal it, theology actually is older. Yes, then much, yeah. much older. Uh, when it comes to like the birth of dispensationalism, uh, the founder and creator uh, was a was a theologian named John Darby, mm-hmm. and he thought of uh, the the views that make up the tenets of dispensationalism. He um, he wrote in his teachings uh, in around the 1830s, mm-hmm. uh, and you know later. You know, Schofield with the Schofield right. Reference Bible, they kind of elaborated more on these ideas. Mm-hmm. It became more popular. And then, you know, uh, a couple decades ago, Tim LaHaye, his book, The Left Behind right. Series, yeah. uh, made it Very extremely popular. popular. Yeah. I think the reason dispensationalism is so popular is because of the presence of national Israel. Uh, in May 14th, mm. 1948, mm. Uh, Israel became a nation right. in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And you can, you can even say that, that dispensational theologians and people that fall in that camp say that that is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Yes, than and, getting their land back. And I've heard some great arguments for that. Yes. Um, now, I don't... I'm just going to say from the get-go, um, and I used to believe wholeheartedly that this is fulfillment of Scripture, mm-hmm. um, fulfillment of prophecy. And that's really the focus of dispensationalism. Uh, they hold to a very sharp distinction between Israel and the church, mm-hmm. uh, and they say that biblical prophecy must be interpreted in the literal sense. Right. Um, and so the way in which they define the word literal means that when God is speaking to Israel, he's speaking to Israel, and that this does not in any way, shape, or form apply to the church. Right. So that's the idea. There is a complete distinction between these two groups and because of that there's two programs in history uh god has a program for national israel uh in the old testament then he has a program for the church uh and then he's gonna you know essentially in the end times go back to israel israel and the focus will be on them again uh and so based on that if you are a, I don't want to say progressive dispensationalist, if you are a traditional dispensationalist mm-hmm. and you hold to all those beliefs, then essentially only believers from Pentecost to the rapture comprise the church. Right. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, only believers in that, that time falls period into make the, the church. church dispensation, I guess you could say. Yes, the uh, age of grace, as right. they would call and, it. And, Again, dispensational the- the- theology is bro- has broken time into, I, th- I believe, traditional Se- seven. Yeah, right? traditionally seven dispensations. Um, these are time periods when God is doing new things in history. Right, working in different ways. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, we, the, I think, you know, I think they say that, like, God, 
progression of the rose is i think the term yes that yeah. that he is revealing himself throughout time until jesus when when he's revealed himself in the rose how it's like growing and then finally it becomes like a beautiful rose yes yeah, so that's the idea uh, and so when it comes to dispensational theology you have to be consistent in holding that the church and israel are two separate entities right uh and so for that reason a lot of theologians, a lot of dispensational theologians, and a lot of Baptist churches today, uh, they hold this view in so high regard uh, that sometimes it's even like, uh, it can become dangerous. It can be considered orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I once got called a heretic mm. for what I believe wow. uh, because I don't believe that they're, oh, well, we'll get into that. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but essentially, like, what we're trying to discuss here is this idea that God has two separate peoples. Right. That there's no, that there's no, uh, that there is a, there is a, Israel people of God, but there's also a church people of right. God. Right, and and I mean, dispensational theologians, like, they say that those are, I think they call them parallel promises. Yeah. So although they're separate, they're moving along the same line. Mm-hmm. Like, right now, see, I don't know what like what the majority would say, but I don't, I, right now I don't think dispensationals would say that God favors Israel over the church. No. I think they no. would say that they... Are both have special places in God's mm-hmm. eyes and that they run parallel with each other. Yes. Um, now, they run parallel with each other, but they're separate, mm-hmm. uh, each with their separate promises, more so promises for Israel than the church. And that gets into a lot of eschatological ideas, which we can elaborate we on, on talking like about in a later, later podcast. Right. But like for now, uh, I think when we come to answering the question of you know, who are the people of God? Essentially, we have to say, well, God has two people. Right. Uh, there is, there, and some would even say that, uh, some would even say that Israel is the wife of Yahweh, of Jehovah. Right. And, and the church is the bride of Christ. Right. Even though, even though biblically, Yahweh is the Father, the Son, the Spirit. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so since they're two separate entities, yes. would that cause for two separate covenants? Uh, and kind of talk to me about that. I, I've heard some of that before. Is, yeah, yeah. Is that supported in Scripture, that strong of a belief? Because two different people, would that require two different covenants? Some people would say that, I, I think when we're talking specifically about the new covenant mm. in Jeremiah 31, some people would say that that has nothing to do with the church and that that is strictly for Israel, right. national Israel, uh, and that that will not come to fruition until national Israel is saved uh, and until God's redemptive purposes for them are restored. Some would say that the new covenant that Christ was talking about at the Last Supper is the same covenant. Uh, some people would say that there's two new covenants. Okay. There's the one that Christ spoke of, and then there's the one in Jeremiah 31 that's referenced right. for national Israel. And some would say that it's a it's a double fulfillment. You know, okay. it, it's partially fulfilled us. It begins with us, and then uh, once national national Israel has taken hold of the promises under the new covenant, then it will be fulfilled. Right, right. And yeah, that ma- that makes sense. Like I can see where that's drawn from. And it just seems a little, it's a little confusing because Christ right. says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Right. It and seems to be very clear. It seems to be very singular yes. in, in his wording. Um, but to be clear, and we're, I mean, we're just going to be talking about the church in Israel. There's so many more things that go into dispensational theology. Yes. Um, a lot like there's just so much that goes into it but specifically for today's episode we just need you guys to know that dispensational theology makes a clear differentiation between the church and israel Mm. and if you are a part of ethnic israel that means like born a jew Mm. then you're part of that camp and if you are a uh, i guess a gentile born into anybody else right anyone else (laughs) and you're a christian you fall into the church Yes. Uh, And that's kind of the distinction that they make there. Yeah. Okay. So now with that in mind, let's go to our viewpoint, which is not as uh, popular. It's not as uh, accepted, I guess you could say. But it's very very reformed. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's it's very – I would say a a good majority of reformed people fall into this camp. And that's where – the church and Israel under the new covenant become one yes. in Christ. Yes. And so there's, there's no longer two separate entities, but yes. we see, uh, we see the cross, this new covenant, we are now becoming one mm-hmm. and now we're chasing after God together yes. rather than as two separate people parallel. Yes. I so think, tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we really need to ask ourselves the question, uh, in what way, 
did the kingdom of God come in the New Testament in the so-called church age? Right. When the Holy Spirit come, what exactly changed? Because there is, there is a distinction between the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So obviously the kingdom of God came in a new way when Christ came, when he died and rose again, and when the Spirit of God came in a new way mm. on believers. Right. Uh, there is a difference. And the church, I would say the beginning of the church the church was born at Pentecost. I would say that. Okay. I, I would venture to say that, but I would also say that the relationship of Israel and the church is not, it's not a, it's not to be said in terms of separation or replacement, right. but it's organic development. Right. It's an organic development. I believe that true Israel makes up the, um, true Israel from the Old Testament makes up the nucleus of the New Testament church. Okay. It's organic. It's not like there's two separate programs, but one leads directly into the other. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's it's kind of we're being, not, I wouldn't say, a, we are being brought into Israel. So, like, we are now part of that. Uh, ethnic Israel, right? Like under the yes. new covenant, we're now brought into not only uh, the people of God, but we are also brought into the same blessings and promises that God has given. Uh, yes. In terms of prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy and things like that, yeah. w- you know, we say all of those prophecies were fulfilled with Jesus at the cross. Yeah, uh, and so those now promises that dispensationals would say are for ethnic Israel in the future don't necessarily apply to ethnic Israel now yeah, uh, because they were fulfilled yeah. with Jesus on the cross. I think it's important you know, that what you're saying is that you, are, you are making a distinction when you say the word ethnic Israel right. uh, to distinguish it from true spiritual Israel. Right. I think it's important that we understand, because uh, we asked the question, you know, national Israel in the Old Testament, uh, was everyone in national Israel saved? Right. No, of course not. No, I mean, we see the kings, Look at the, yeah. uh, the, the kings were, the majority of them were evil. Horrible. Uh, they were horrible kings, yeah. except for maybe like I think six from six from from Judah, Judah. Yeah. and then none from, none from Israel from the northern. Like ever since David and Solomon, <laughs> Pork, yeah. it just went downhill oh, from there. Uh, and the nation constantly they bowed to worship idols, then they bowed to God again. Right. Uh, they this is a sinful people, um, and but we but we do see that there are a few people, the, the so-called remnant, uh, that God has that God has chosen out from national Israel, uh, a remnant of people who will serve him and not bow their knee to Baal. Uh, These people are the true spiritual Israel. So I think it's important that we understand that even in the Old Testament, there is there is a distinction between Israel and Israel. There's a distinction between national Israel and spiritual. Like the invisible Israel, the spiritual yeah. Israel. Yeah, the and true Israel, the, the elect. Right. The elect. And, and so the way I like to word it to kind of make it, I guess, easier to remember, like easier to click in the mind, is mm-hmm. that so physical Israel... Were, they were all circumcised, right? Yes. So, so on the seventh day, you'd get circumcised, <laughs> yeah. and and that's kind of how you knew if you, they were in, like Jewish or not because of the circumcision, right? And everyone was circumcised. Yes. But that doesn't mean they were all saved, like you were saying. So that yes. physical Israel, even though they were all circumcised, didn't guarantee their salvation. However, mm-hmm. inside of that circle, you mm-hmm. have invisible Israel or spiritual Israel yes. where not only Israelites can partake in but everyone can partake into that and Absolutely. we see examples yeah. all throughout the Old Testament of non-Jewish people yes. being not only used by God but yes. also being blessed by God Yeah, especially women especially women Rahab and Ruth Ruth the yeah. Moabite Canaanite women uh, these people who who had nothing to do with national Israel, and yet God chose to use them um, in his redemptive plan and considered them one of his very own people. Yeah. Uh, we read about them in the Hall of Faith, you know, I mean, in Hebrews 11. Uh, and so we come to the New Testament, uh, I think especially in Romans chapter 9. Mm. I think if, if someone, like, just as a prerequisite, if they're going to listen to this podcast, I, I would suggest read Romans 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, a lot of that passage is used um, as a defense for Reformed theology, for unconditional election, right. and we have talked about that. But the context of that passage deals with the question of, has God's promises failed his people Israel? Mm. Because Paul introduces this topic, and he is in anguish over his people, right. over national ethnic Israel, because so many Jews are rejecting mm. their Messiah. Um, he has come, he has died, he's been resurrected, and yet the majority of the Jewish people of Paul's day are rejecting Jesus. Right. Uh, and so the question that Paul asks is, has the word of God failed? And he says, by no means. Uh, and then he says in verse 6, I think this is the key verse in Romans 9, 6, he says, not all who are Israel 
are Israel. Right. Just because you are a physical Israelite, circumcised um, physically, right. does not mean that you are a spiritual Israelite, circumcised in your heart. Spiritually, right. Because even, even Romans 2 says that a true Jew is one who has been circumcised in his heart. Right. That's what distinguishes true spiritual Israel from ethnic Israel. Have they been right. circumcised in their heart? And that's not a question of ethnicity um, or culture. It's a question right. of... It's a question of, do you have the Spirit? Do you know Jesus? Right. Um, are you true Israel? And then we read in Galatians chapter 6, Paul Ooh. calls the church the Israel of God. Yeah, like the entire church. Like there's no, like you can you can look at the Greek, you can look at, you know, where the different words and how they're used in different spots of Scripture. Yeah. It, he is calling the church Israel. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Galatians 6 is like one of my hands down favorite Me too. Uh, yeah. passages of it's Scripture. It's beautiful. Yeah, but yeah, anyways, yeah, we see that, and we see these themes all throughout Scripture. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, we see, I believe that's what, in Romans, or, yeah, Romans, and we see um, in other places where Paul and other New Testament writers are, are making not a distinction between Israel and the church, but they're they're making them one. They're inclus mm -hmm. every, It's inclusive of everyone. And then uh, you hit Revelation, and I think this is where... Covenantal theologians and dispensational theologians interpret scripture completely differently. Very, very uh, differently. And and so dispensational theologians hold to a literal interpretation of scripture, quote yes. unquote. They, a, a futuristic view. Right. They Yeah, futuristic. Yes. And, and to where covenantalists, tell me about how, how that interpretation style differs from okay. yeah. dispensational uh, interpretations. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... Uh, so we're talking specifically about the book of Revelation. We're, we're going to talk about specifically... about prophecy so let's talk about so yeah. even in daniel uh we we read you know in daniel 9 i believe we're about, about the weeks. weeks yeah yeah and so obviously dispensational theologians covenantal theologians are going to differ there and i i believe in isaiah we have some some things where dispensational theologians would interpret it one way and we would interpret it a different way so yeah what are the differences in interpretation <laughs> I, I think it's important to note um that we, we have to understand that prophecy is a very unique kind of genre, mm. and we can't assume that the language that the ancient Isra Israelite prophets used is the same language that we use right. uh, in terms of how they describe things. Uh, so, like, for instance, Isaiah talks about, um, and this is a passage that even Jesus quoted, uh, he talks about the stars falling from the heavens mm -hmm. and the sun not shining anymore and the moon uh, not giving its light. Right. Uh, and, and this is a very, a very apocalyptic kind of picture right uh, but the thing is is that when, when he's talking about this when he's saying these words he's referencing the coming destruction of Israel by the hand of Babylon mm. he's talking about national events using cosmic symbolism he's using prophetic hyperbole right and so we have to understand that just because they say something doesn't mean we have to interpret it that way. We have to look at the context of what's being said, right. the history behind it, and understand that not everything that they're saying is strictly literal. Now, now we believe that every the God's word is God's word. It's inspired. It's, it's inspired. Right. It's inerrant. Um, but at the same time, the Spirit, as he's carrying along these prophets, he's using their writing styles, and he's using uh, different figures of speech, right. metaphors. We, we have to leave room for things like that. Right, and we see that even in Revelation. So so when John is having all of the this this vision and this revelation, yeah. he's like, I think I see locusts, and like I think I see all these yeah. things, but like they, they could very well not be literal locusts. Yeah. Or like a three-headed beast. Jesus as, the lamb, as a lamb. Right, so to, to then interpret that literally, yeah. I think is to make... Almost like interpreting it literally opens more room mm -hmm. for incorrect theology. Absolutely, uh, because because we have to understand that the way we interpret things was not the way they wrote or interpreted things, especially when it came yeah. to apocalyptic literature. Yeah, and when it comes to apocalyptic literature, especially, it's a very unique genre, um, and it uses a lot of cosmic imagery and figures of speech and metaphors right. and symbolism and symbols and we have to interpret one the symbols in light of the symbols but we also have to look at every phrase you look at the book of revelation that is the one book in the new testament that quotes the old testament more than any other book yes that's and it's so beautiful it's so beautiful yeah. but if you want to really understand revelation you have to go to every single old testament reference that's there in order to fully understand what's right. being talked about and so let me just give you for instance um 
a lot of people like to interpret Revelation as a chronological book, a mm -hmm. linear book. Right. Uh, but the truth is you can't really do that because you see that there are different points throughout the book of Revelation where John is referencing the end when Christ returns. It's a book that cycles. Um, it's a it's a book, of, and this is called the recapitulation view. Right. He's telling the same story from different perspectives. And, and so the main mainstream reform view, I would say, um, you know, the view that we see today in, in America, especially the futurist view, um, but the view that we're talking about right here, this view of recapitulation, it would say that what John is describing in the book of Revelation is the entire inner advent age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Right. And, and so everything that's happening in between is what's being described in symbolic terms of what's happening on the earth. Right. Uh, and then, then he's unveiling it, uh, unveiling what is the spiritual significance of it, what's happening in the heavens as, as these events are transpiring on the earth. Uh, and so... Let me just give you, for instance, uh, when we're discussing specifically Israel and the church, dispensationalists love to use the book of Revelation to prove that there's a distinction right. because they say that Revelation chapters 4 through 19 deal right. with the tribulation right. and that there's a focus on Israel here. And, I, and it is worth noting that uh, John talks to... Uh, I mean, he writes this, it's a letter. First of all, right. we should note that. It's yeah, a it's letter an to seven churches. Yeah. To seven churches, literal, real churches that have real issues. And he addresses those seven with words from Christ that he's mm -hmm. recorded. And then chapters 4 through 19, he doesn't say the word church. Mm. He, he does say saints, though. Okay. He does say saints. And he does talk about believers in Jesus who die um, for the testimony. So it's interesting because there is no separation between church and Israel. He's saying saints, yeah. Yeah. believers. Yeah. Okay. And some would say that... Uh, so it talks about, you know, the 12,000 that are sealed from right. from the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. Uh, but there's some things we should note about this. The first thing is that he listed Judah first. And this is the only list in the New Testament, in the in any in both the Old and New Testament, that has Judah listed first in the list of the 12 tribes. Hmm. And Judah is the tribe that Jesus came from. That's the first thing to note. Right. And then the second thing to note is that John doesn't see these 12 tribes being sealed. He hears it. He says, right. and I heard... Um, an angel go out and seal 12,000 from the 12 tribes. And then he turns and sees a multitude of every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Mm -hmm. and, and so we see that even in the beginning. He says he hears the lion of the tribe of Judah, but then he turns and sees a slain lamb that's still standing. Mm. Uh, and so that this is one of those uh, one of those distinctives of apocalyptic right. literature. There's a difference between what's being heard and what's being seen. Right. Uh, there, it's very symbolic in nature. Yeah. And, and, and then for us to interpret that literally... Again, it's dangerous. And I, I read this amazing book. I can't, I can't recall the name of it. But basically he was saying, it was a Revelation commentary. Basically he was saying that literalism is the exception and metaphor is the key. Mm -hmm. Or like allegory is the key. So, so we have to read it and kind of like flip the way we're used to reading the rest of Scripture, right? Yeah. When we're, specifically when we're looking at apocalyptic writing. Yeah. Literal writing in apocalyptic writing is rare. It's the exception. Yes. We have to read it through a lens of like interpretation, allegory. Yeah, it's metaphor. not historical narrative. Right, it is apocalyptic literature. So right. we have to read it in that context. And we see that, like we see that, like the way you and I would read Psalms would be completely different because than the poetry. way we would read Leviticus. Yeah, right. It's because poetry one versus is, law. Right, and so we would read. And that would go to the historical narratives yeah. in the Old Testament. That would go from the epistles. Like, we see these different genres of scripture. Because the Bible's a library. Right. So then, you know, to go to apocalyptic, we have to look at how they read apo other apocalyptic literature in their uh -huh. time. And, and we see from other apocalyptic writings from the time when Revelation was written, when it, if, whether you believe it was written before or after Nero, yeah, uh, and you know wherever you wherever you sit with that, yeah, we see other apocalyptic literature falling in line with how mm -hmm. Revelation is written, and so we have to interpret it the way they would interpret their apocalyptic literature, mm. not the way we would interpret our, I guess you could say apocalyptic literature or you know biblical yes. literature, right? We have to look at it through a different view. And I, you were talking about the futurist view. Uh, and so just to kind of give some clar clarity on what that is, I have, if you guys really want to know about apocalyptic writing in a little bit more detail, there's actually a post on Grace Nation, what is apocalyptic writing? It's one, it's one of the most popular posts on Grace Nation. Like there are people that look at it like every yeah. day. It's, it's kind of weird, but amazing <laughs> in the same way. Uh, but I'll just people read you. People want to know. I know. So, uh, people have four different views, uh, within this dispensational camp, historicist, uh, mm -hmm. idealist, futurist, and preterist. Uh, 
Futurist is the most popular one. And so let me just read you what, what's on this article. And hopefully, hopefully it'll give some clarification between... What do you call the one where it repeats? How do you pronounce that? Uh, recapitulation. Recapitulation versus the futurist view. Yes. Uh, the most the, And this is how it starts. The most widely prevalent interp interpretive school is the futurist. This approach to Revelation sees the prophecies of Revelation, particularly beginning at Revelation 4.1, as portraying the remote future from John's time. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. This view understands Revelation as dealing with the ultimate historical issues that the world and or the church will face just prior to Christ's return. Mm. And then some weaknesses to the futurists uh, include some of these. It totally removes the relevance uh, of the audience that John is talking to. And I think that is huge. We have to remember it's an epistle, right? Yes. How and, would the original audience have received this? Right. And how does it apply to them directly? I heard the best quote, Daniel Duncan, my youth pastor, great guy. He says, prophecy has no meaning in the future if it doesn't have meaning now. Absolutely. And it's great. Absolutely. So, so to completely remove the relevance of John's audience seems to be like that's not how we're supposed to interpret scripture because mm -hmm. we read the other epistles and we read them in context of he's writing to galatia he's writing to ephesus he's writing to corinth yes. we have to look at the problems we have to look at the sexual immor immorality that's yes. going on in corinth to understand why he's saying these things yeah so in the same way we have to do that with revelation right um uh, it has to reinterpret the phenomena in john's day to make it fit the modern times uh, it overlooks the claims of the nearness of the events in Revelation. It's not subject to a historical verification presently, and it's incapable of falsification, and thereby fails the philosophical verification principles, which, according to some philosophers, renders it philosophically meaningless. Mm. So we look at that, and again, uh, the futurist view, it's its a time, it's, uh, it's linear, right? Yeah. And so we read that, Jesus Christ is going to come like a thief in the night. Hmm. He, 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 you're not going to be able to know when the seventh seal is broken and when the third bowl is broken. You know, like you can look at events in time and try with this viewpoint and like, oh, Jesus is going to come soon. Then, if the third mm -hmm. bowl, you know, or the the <laughs> second horse has come, yeah. you know, he's going to come like a thief in the night, and it's mm -hmm. not up to us to interpret how or when he will come. And I think this view is so popular because it allows us to to kind of falsify some idea of Absolutely. when we think he's going to come. Absolutely. People are obsessed with this idea of the end. Right. Uh, because it's tangible. Yeah, and so we see today a national Israel. We see a, a nation... Uh, the sovereignty of the nation of Israel mm. taking place since May of 1948. Right. And so because of that, because we see these events playing out in the Middle East today, because we see these natural disasters, we like to take modern day events and attribute them to what scripture has to say uh, prophetically, right. speaking about the future, instead of looking at the prophecies of scripture and asking the questions, when were these said, who were they said to, uh, right. what was the prophet speaking of? Uh, because there's many prophecies that I've heard people quote that have already been fulfilled, and yet we try and take those and apply that <laughs> right. to our modern day, Absolutely. even though they've already they've already come to pass. Right, and, and I think that's partly because of, not our sin, I wouldn't attribute that to our sinful nature, but it's because we like to see things happen yes we like to be Absolutely. like that was said in the bible that's so cool that it happened and although it would like it is cool when we witness god move and fulfill things and and work in people's lives mm -hmm. we have to be really careful that we are are diligently searching the scriptures yeah and diligently seeking god and understanding that not everything is attributed to biblical prophecy. Not every natural disaster, not every war, not, every not people getting elected into press. <laughs> I've seen pr people saying that like Donald Trump is the Antichrist. You know, like saying stuff like that, that's the fulfillment. He's the Antichrist. Like that's not how these things work. But because of the way our brains are set and our, our Americanized way of thinking, yeah. we like to say and attribute things uh, to biblical prophecy when really they have nothing to do with the Bible at all. Yeah, and I think that when we do that, we, we take prophecy and we 
we misuse and abuse it. Whenever Christ talked about his return, he always talked about it in terms of stirring his disciples to alertness. Uh, he, he warned them they need to be awake, they need to be diligent with the time that we have because the days are evil, because the day is near. We don't know when the Lord will return. And, and that's the main point of Jesus' of the Alva Discourse in Matthew 24. Right. Uh, whenever the apostles talk about Christ's return, they always say, uh, in the last days, these will be the characteristics. And even though we can see some of those, we understand that there is a progression of depravity, yes, uh, but we shouldn't be constantly watching the news anxiously to see what matches and try to conform right. current events to what the Bible says. Um, we should rather be allowing what's happening today to stir us to go and tell people about Jesus. Right. Because whenever Christ talked about his return, he always said it in a way in order to stir his disciples to go tell us about him because they don't know when he's going to return. Right. And, and I, it's that not knowing that should make us that eager. That should encourage us to go yeah. do it. Yeah. And I think uh, just just focusing on, so so we have d- dove, dived, one of the two. Yes. Into we, eschatology. Yes. Grammar. Slightly. Grammar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're saving that topic for another podcast, probably yes. next week. However, we oh, want wait, to really? make... Yeah. But we <laughs> want to make like it three clear. Hours. I know. <laughs> we want to make it clear that that theology is important. Yes. Right? Understanding Jesus and striving to know him better and better is important. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's essential to the Christian life, right? Yeah. And and eschatology falls in that category, under, like understanding Jesus better mm. and, and kind of being able to strive after him and learn more char- learn more about his characteristics, right? But, yeah. but when we allow something like eschatology, something that we can truly, truly never understand or know here mm. on this lifetime and in, in this life until it happens mm. when we become consumed by this idea and let and it takes our eyes off of Jesus a problem has happened absolutely right like so so instead of using eschatology and getting obsessed in this idea mm. of studying the end times which is a really interesting thing to study and it catches a lot of theologians up in its trap mm-hmm. and Satan uses a an amazing theology and he twists it to become an idol. Mm-hmm. And so we only focus on on this one you know subsection of Christianity yeah. and we get so entrapped in it that, that we lose focus on Jesus. Everything yeah. that we should be studying, everything that we do in scripture, Absolutely. ultimately 100% without a shadow of a doubt points back to Jesus. And when it's mm-hmm. not doing that for us, maybe either A, we're interpreting it wrong, B, we're consumed in it, yeah. or C, we're just being lackadaisical and, and not studying Scripture the way it should be. Yeah, and I, I very much believe that when Christ returns, will be the day of correction. Yeah. Um, and I'll, we're all going to be surprised in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Dispensation will be like, dang it, I missed it there. Covenantals will be like, ah, we missed it there. And then us too. And we'll be like, we got it right! <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, we didn't. Uh, yeah, not really. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so it, it will be, definitely, 100%. Yeah. And so for that reason, you know, we, we can't afford to be dogmatic about it because it's not the gospel. The Calvary should be the hill the only hill that we're willing to die on. Right. Um, and so when it comes, when we approach the scriptures, especially in things in regards to prophecy, uh, things that are ambiguous, mm. and, and it's and it's not it's not sinful to say that, it right. is ambiguous. We don't know all the specifics. Yeah. And even the Bible, um, the, the reason there are so many interpretations is because the Bible leaves room for that. Right. And so for that reason, we have to approach the scriptures, we have to interpret scripture in light of other scripture and try to come to our conclusion. We can't put on, and this is what I did when I was a dispensationalist. You know, I, I love, like I love people who mm-hmm. are dispensational. Yeah, me too. My former pastor is dispensational and I love him with all my heart and I would sit under his teachings mm-hmm. any day. Um, but the way I misused and abused it, I used it as theological lenses in order to interpret the Bible rather than use the Bible to interpret my theology. Right. And so for that reason, um, there, there is a danger when we obsess over a theological construct mm. or a distinctive or a secondary issue. Uh, because when we do that, when we do that, it causes us, it causes us, again, like you said, to take our eyes off of Jesus. Um, and instead of it, instead of it turning our affections for him, it becomes our idol. Right. I really do believe that the best kind of theology is the one that stirs your affections for the Lord and emboldens your evangelism. If it doesn't do those, either one of those things, you could even be believing the right thing and it's still bad theology. Right. Absolutely. It's still bad theology. 100%. I think so basically what you're saying is we should allow scripture to construct our theology instead of allowing these theological lenses yes. to instruct the way we interpret scripture. And I yeah. think that's what a lot of Christians do. And I don't necessarily think it's the church's fault, but I think the church is the 
the culprit because the we don't test the spirits. We don't, you know, go back to scripture and and test. Well, did Pastor Bill say this right? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. did 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 he say that that Jesus was going to come on October thirty first? Well, let me read scripture and see what it says about that. You know what I mean? We don't do that, and we just kind of blindly accept what the guy in the pulpit is saying. Yeah. And so when we when we do happen to get into scripture, we're allowing that to influence the what we read yeah. instead of allowing what we read to influence how we act. Yeah, and when we really when we really allow the scriptures to be what shape our theology, we're going to be biblical people because the scriptures are Christocentric. Right. And we will be about Jesus when we're about his word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know about you, but when I I was I was covenantal or like I was even Calvinist before I even knew what tulip was, right? So yeah. like I just read the Bible and I was like same same Total depravity makes sense, you know. Same. Unconditional that makes sense. Limited atonement, yeah, I see it right here. So it's like I read scripture and was like, this just reinforced it. But if you if you start at tulip and then go into scripture, you're wrong because then you're allowing yeah. tulip to dictate the way you read scripture. Absolutely. Let Absolutely. the way you read scripture dictate yeah. what you believe. That's also my story, you know. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. No. Somebody was like, somebody said to me, uh, they asked me, so so did God choose? me? They were a believer, mm-hmm. you know. They were saved, and uh, they trusted in the Lord. And they're like, "Did God choose me?" I was like, "Well, yeah." They're like, "You're a Calvinist?" I was like, "I'm a what?" <laughs> and, and, I, and this is when I was a young believer. Right. I had just read through the Bible the first time. I read through it cover to cover, and then they asked me that question. I was like, "Oh yeah, it's just so right here in Romans." Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. And they're like, "You're a Calvinist?" I'm like, "I don't even know what that is." Yeah. <laughs> and but like, okay, so um, going back to the original issue, yeah. where the people of God, Israel. Or the church, uh, or national Israel, spiritual Israel, whatever we want to call it. How? Who are the people of God? I'll say this: Israel. Yeah. Spiritual, true Israel. Right. Is the church, and it and, is the people of God. Yeah, and I encourage everyone to sit down and read Scripture. Yeah. And and, and come and, and allow the Scripture to speak into your life, and, and you know through our experiences reading Scriptures yeah. and seeing these things. You know, we are more than confident that this is the biblical view. Yeah, especially you know, read through Romans nine through eleven. Uh, read through that entire issue. Paul is in anguish over his fellow kinsmen. Uh, he's talking about the Jewish people, and then we come to chapter eleven and we get this beautiful picture. He uses this symbol, uh, this image of an olive tree, uh, with the natural branches branches being the ethnic Jews that have been cut off, and now these these. Uh, these other branches are being grafted in the Gentiles. Right. That's the picture he gives. And so, which theological construct does this support? And I would say that our view. It, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say mm-hmm. I believe it's more in line with what the Scripture is saying because mm-hmm. when it comes to this tree, this tree, this tree is a symbol of the people of God. He doesn't cut down the tree and plant a new one, right. like replacement theology. He doesn't take branches off of one tree and put it on another dispensational theology it is one tree throughout the whole Mm. uh, of the biblical narrative of the biblical story from the old testament to the new testament um in every in every stage from creation to consummation it is an organic development of the people of god one tree and we see branches being broken off natural branches but then being grafted in uh and so i very much believe based on that passage alone we could Mm. see that there is one tree one people of god israel true spiritual Israel. Uh, and so I think the last question we should address, because um, I do think it's important uh, so that way we don't have to address it later, right. is, is the question of what do we personally believe about the future of national Israel? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, because like I, because again, if you're a replacement theologian, you would say that they have no future uh, in God's plan right, for right. redemption. And and I would say that that's false. Yeah, I think I would, I would also say that that's false. And if you're dispensational... Uh, theologian or, or believe in dispensational theology, you say that they have a great future. Like yeah, that they're, that they're the focus. They of... they are God's plan. Yes, right? one hundred forty four thousand. You know, you you read scripture and you interpret it like like God will eventually be the God of Israel, and, and will we don't inherit those same promises that Israel will inherit. Yeah, eventually, right. So answering the question of what is the future for national ethnic Israel for the Jewish mm-hmm. people. I would say, again, we need to turn our attention to Romans 9 through 11, mm-hmm. and we need to go specifically to chapter 11 uh, in verses you know, 25 through 26, where Paul reaches the end of this, of this discourse about 
national Israel. Uh, and so he begins talking about, again, his anguish, and then he comes to this conclusion that the word of God has not failed because not everyone who is physically descended from Israel is a spiritual Israelite. Mm -hmm. Just because you are circumcised physically does not mean that you've been circumcised in your heart. And so then he elaborates on, you know, election and things right. like that. And then he comes to chapter 11. And after giving this beautiful, uh, beautiful metaphor of this tree, uh, he ends it by saying that all Israel will be saved. Mm -hmm. And then he says, then he quotes Zechariah chapter 12, where he says the deliverer will come to Zion and he'll remove the sins and the iniquities of Jacob. Mm. And he's referencing the second coming of Christ. Uh, and so there's a few different views with this phrase, all Israel will be saved. Um, John Calvin, a theologian that you and I both highly, highly regard. Highly One regard. of the most influential people yes. in Christian history after the apostles. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. He would say about this passage that that word Israel means all the elect. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, I would venture to disagree with him on mm -hmm. this point, and, and I rarely do that. Yeah. Um, but I think when it comes to the context of the passage, we have to understand that the initial problem is, uh, is the unbelief of national Israel. That's what right. Paul is concerned with. And so he elaborates on that, and he says in chapter 11 that the reason for this partial hardening that God has placed on Israel is to allow salvation to come to the Gentiles. Uh, and then he says later uh, that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, mm -hmm. that the fullness of the number of Gentiles, some translation says, comes in, that's when the hardening will be taken away. Right. Uh, and then Jesus even talks about how Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Uh, and so what does this mean, the fullness of the Gentiles? I would personally say this. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah. And I admit that. Um, but I very much believe that either prior, leading up to, prior to, or at the return of Christ, which Paul is referencing, there will be a mass in gathering of ethnic Jewish people into the people of God in the church. That prior to or at the return of Christ, uh, their hardening will be taken away. And as a nation, they will receive their Messiah onto themselves. I'm not saying necessarily every single member of national Israel, every single physical Jew. Um, I'm saying just as a nation, as a whole, mm -hmm. I believe that they will receive their Messiah. And this isn't to say that God is saving them separate from the church, right. but that they're being saved just as everyone in the past history has been saved, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone in the Messiah. Um, the Old Testament, they're looking forward. New Testament, we're looking back. And so in the same way that we're saved today, they are being, these natural branches are being grafted back into the tree. They're coming into the true people of God, into the church, uh, and they're becoming, essentially, they're becoming Christians. Right. They're, right. they're being incorporated in the bride of Christ. And that is when um, the fulfillment of that prophecy uh, of Zechariah 12 will come to fruition, when Christ returns and he'll remove from Jacob their iniquities uh, when the deliverer comes to Zion. That's what I would say. Okay. Yeah, that's different. It's it, yeah. It, I I see what you're saying. Um, I don't necessarily know if I 100% agree with everything, but I definitely see the biblical interpretation of it. And it's interesting uh -huh. because I I really enjoyed the way instead of t taking John Calvin's view and saying that Israel's the elect, instead wrapping it back to Paul's original meaning for this discourse for this mm -hmm. what three chapter nine through eleven. Yeah. Yeah, three-chapter discourse. Um, and so, and I think that's something that we rarely do in the church, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we rarely interpret scripture through the lens, through the through the eyes of the author's purpose, right? Yeah. And that's what, like, hermeneutically, that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed Absolutely. to look through, you know, Paul's lens and see, like, well, what was the meaning? Who was the audience? And what was he trying to convey through, you know this passage mm -hmm. to the people we speak. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely will have to look more into that uh, as I study, but yeah, for sure. Um, this podcast is getting pretty long. It's, it's hitting. It's <laughs> so so hitting let, let's, let's try and wrap it let's up. Let's wrap it up. Okay. What's the so point? what's the point of all this? Who is the church of God? Who, who is God's chosen people? Spiritual Israel. Absolutely. Uh, we are not only uh, a part, or we're not only adopted into that family, but we are we are now with, uh, are always ha always have been with Israel. Yeah. And now we we are able to sit and pursue Jesus under one covenant. Yeah. Uh, and pursue after Him as one people. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that just the beauty in that is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Jesus and God doesn't only 
uh, cherish one specific group of people, but that Absolutely. he invites, uh, you know, the people he calls into his family Absolutely. and adopts them out uh, from their life in sin and into a yeah. life of Christ. Yeah. And so I think where you and I would definitely sit is that nation or. Israel and the church become one, a spiritual Israel, or as the invisible ch- church, I think. Yes. Uh, those those terms can be used interchangeably. Yeah. And so that's where we would sit. And I think, uh, w- again, this podcast isn't for the purpose of convincing you that we're right yeah. or or to tell you that you are wrong, but, but we are just giving you our biblical convictions after seeking the scriptures. And we hope yeah. you will do the same thing. We, we hope and pray that you will go to the scriptures mm-hmm. and, and seek them and allow what you read to impact your theology. And so I do think that when, when it comes to how this impacts us spiritually mm-hmm. and in our spiritual life, I think it definitely brings it full circle and it helps us to approach the scriptures in a new light when we right. understand that we are in the same lineage as as Abraham, right, Isaac, right. and Jacob. It's beautiful. It is so beautiful. We come to the New Testament and we see Christ being the fulfillment of all that was before him. Right. Uh, he himself is the fulfillment. We see, and this is just a Pauline idea, but even Peter, when he's talking about the church, he uses Old Testament imagery mm-hmm. to describe the church. Absolutely. He quotes Old Testament prophecies. He quotes Hosea when talking about the church. Um, and so I think the beauty in that is that as believers in Christ, we could approach the scriptures, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. We could see that we could take wisdom from this, uh, that it is it is for us uh, as much right. as any other portion of Scripture. The whole can of Scripture is for us. And and I think the beauty of that, we see it. And, and for, the, for the listener, I would highly suggest also go read the book of Galatians. Mm. Um, yes. I love what, what Paul says. He says that, that the promise of Ab- was made to Abraham and his seed, but he says seed singularly. Mm-hmm. He's talking about Christ. Right. The promises that God made to Abraham apply to Jesus right. and all who are in Christ. Mm. Both, so beautiful. Both before his coming and after his coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's just beauty in that, that we are all one in Christ, that right. our family uh, our family goes back to the beginning of time. Uh, and right. I think that when we, when we have that approach, when we have that mindset, uh, we can approach the scriptures in a new light and we can understand that, that this is truly our story. Right. This, is, this story of redemption is our story. We play yeah. a part of it from beginning to end. We are a part of this story, this redemptive history, um, this biblical narrative that God has been writing uh, since since the beginning of time, since creation. Right, and it, it's so beautiful because I think we have to understand that that Christ's atonement for our sins on the cross was not just from the cross on, but it was from yeah. the cross on and the cross back. Right, like people yeah. would would sacrifice their animals for for a temporary atonement of their sins, and then when Christ died on the cross, it it completely covered those things eternally. And so Christ's redemptive work was not just for the future, but it was also for the past and people Mm. who were looking forward to the uh, death of Christ and, 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 uh, you know, expecting the Christ in in his coming. And so it's just such a beautiful picture. And I want to ask you this question before we close. How, how does this theology, how does this interpretation of scripture, Mm -hmm stir our affections for Jesus? How does mm. it encourage us to pursue him? Because if we don't allow yeah. our theologies to do that, then like you said, it's bad theology. Yeah. So how does this covenantal uh, interpretation of scripture, how does this, the church and in Israel becoming one spiritual Israel, how does that cause yeah. us to love Jesus more? Yeah, I would say, especially for me, uh, when I came to this conclusion based on the scriptures that what stirred me more than anything was was that I went back to what the scriptures said about about national Israel, uh, what, what I believe was national Israel, and seeing that that applies to me now, it brought so much beauty to the passage. So just give an example. I think of Hosea. Mm. I think of Hosea where, where God is talking to his people and he says, you know, I will, I will woo my sinful people. I will woo her in the desert and bring her back to myself. I will wash her iniquities away. Uh, we see all these throughout the Old Testament especially, I, I read through the Old Testament now in a new light, mm. and I can't help but weep because I see that he's talking to us. Right. He's talking about his people. Um, and so whenever whenever God calls his people um, the apple of his eye or, or the people of his own possession, we have to realize that that saying applies to us, right. that we are his people. He has bought us with his blood. We are, the, we are the apple of his eye. We are a people of his own possession. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy, a holy nation. Mm. Uh, we have been called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, mm. the kingdom of light, to proclaim the excellencies of him 
who brought us out. Right. Uh, and so I really think, at least for me, when I come to the understanding that there are one people of God, uh, one, it gives me a greater admiration right. uh, for Jesus and for his body, for the church, um, for his bride. And it also, uh, it also for me, it helps me approach the scripture and understand that everything written in it from beginning to end, um, although it has specific context, it's written to specific people in specific times, ultimately, God has he has preserved for himself a remnant throughout history, a remnant of believers who will not bow their knee to Baal or any mm-hmm. other false god, um, and they are his chosen people. They are his, and we are a part of that people. Right. Absolutely, 100%. Um, and so we we hope and pray for, for you guys listening that, that this would allow and stir your affections for Christ and that, mm. that he would use this uh, to point you towards himself and that and that you that he would use this to point you into scripture and and, and he would work in you and in your hearts uh, as you read scripture to allow you to to come to the conclusion and, and to into it come to whatever theology allows you to serve him and serve others within biblical uh, concepts. It doesn't mean you can come up with some wacko, crazy theology, but it means that God will give you the discernment and wisdom yeah. to accurately interpret his scriptures yeah. according to his will. And I will say one more thing. I used to be very obsessed with national Israel. Mm-hmm. I do think it's important for us to pray for Jerusalem, pray right. for that nation. I think that's a biblical, that is a biblical mandate, um, but not just for them, but for all nations. Um, and I think that when our focus is not on, because Christianity is not nationalism of any kind christianity is about a king and a kingdom um, and that's who we serve and so i think just directing our focus towards that that we are about the advancement of one kingdom and the enlarging of one people and that it is not our job to take up our inheritance but to lay down our lives so that we might share with everybody else Um, i think when we come to the scriptures with that approach and come to even current events with that approach and realize that there is one people of god and he is working all of this for his glory uh, i think it really changes really how we do evangelism right, absolutely. how we do ministry 100 percent, i agree billy thank you so much for being here again today <laughs> it's it's an amazing opportunity an amazing blessing for me to have you as the co-host thank you of it's, to be here. it's amazing so I'm sorry i talk so much well i mean i appreciate it you have so so much wisdom and knowledge to give to us so you do too we love it well you know <laughs> i'm not that smart okay so thank you guys so much for listening uh let me know if you guys appreciate the longer podcast or if you guys like the closer to like the 30 minute podcast let me know because i know today was a little bit over an hour so yeah you know we we talked for a long time but but we really do feel like it was worth the time and the discussion so let us know if which one you prefer and we will we will attempt our best to to cut it into those segmented time periods <laughs> for you guys. But anyways, make sure you guys follow us on Twitter at Grace Nation Men. Make sure you like us on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. There's so much going on in the works with this new transition thing that we're going to be launching in January. And there's a few other things with the website that I cannot wait to announce. And so make sure you guys follow us and stay up to date. If you sign up for the newsletter, you guys get special posts and you guys get uh, some exclusive deals and things like that. So make sure you stay up to date with that. Also, running a podcast is not cheap actually it it requires some financial support and with me being in college and everything going on like (laughs) it's it's hard man yeah Yeah. so so god has been gracious in in his dealings with our financial state and he has blessed me with the ability to support uh the ministry and so we are praying that he continues to do that and if it's through you if if he is calling you to to kind of give financially and to support us economically we we are uh, praying and thanking god for you and so there are many ways you can do that you can go to our patreon page you can find that on our website and you can uh donate monthly or you can go to our paypal which you can also find on our website and do a one-time donation uh to whatever the lord is calling you to do and so Regardless of if you feel called or not to support us financially, we do ask that you pray for the ministry and that you allow us to continue uh, doing some effective ministry as God is using the podcast in amazing ways on iTunes. Uh, It's great to see what he's doing there. So we thank you guys for your time. We hope that we were edifying and uh, that God would just edify you through our voices. And uh, we hope you guys have a great week. Until next time, take care and God bless. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. The BGN podcast comes out every week. Questions? 
Email us at gracenationministries at yahoo.com or tweet us at gracenationmin. Until next time, take care and God bless.